we have come almost to the end of our long excursion. We are reading the last two paragraphs from the Gospel of Matthew and searching here and there for the yogic interpretation of the facts as well as of the teachings given in the fundamental message of Jesus. The paragraph number 27, we are in the middle of the tragical events where Jesus has been arrested and he is about to be condemned for a reason which is absurd ultimately and uh, we are somewhere in the middle of those disturbed events. The paragraph number 27 starts with the suicide of Judas himself. It reads, Early in the morning all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied, that your responsibility? So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Then the chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the thirty silver quote, they took the thirty silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. End quote. This paragraph, of course, is dramatic in the fact that it shows what is happening with the person who has been demonized. We can see obviously that Judas here had a moment of pressure, of infernal pressure, exerted on him at the exact crucial moment, and basically he collapsed to this, he did what he was not supposed to do, he did what he did not intend to do, and ultimately, in the moment when this pressure was relieved from his shoulders, he started regretting, he realized, he wanted to give the money back, because money was not the object of what he did. He started claiming the innocence of Jesus, but the high priest said, it's too late now, what do we care? They pretended they, we don't care, it's your problem, you just go and do your stuff. And basically the events were already irreversible. And in this way, that's exactly the way in which demonic forces, and especially the satanic forces, they manipulate people without scruples. <laughs> They get them to do something, surely that is not possible if you are pure, and it's a law of resonance. Of course, Judas was made for this thing through his own skepticism, through his own egoism, through his own doubts, through his own impurities, which were 
appearing even before in his behavior that in some episodes he could not understand why did Jesus did what he did and he was kind of vocal in saying oh things should be, have been done in another way or something like this and basically this shows that he was a fertile ground for it everybody was influenced by them by these demonic especially diabolic forces because you saw that even Peter abandoned Jesus and declared openly three times in spite of his best intentions just a few hours before all the other apostles and all those dear and close to Jesus they were scattered like a flock of birds and uh, obviously on all of them there was this pressure but on Judas it was maximum and it manifested in this way and then he was discarded like a used Kleenex that means the demonic forces used him the diabolic forces in this case even they used him and after they used him there he was sober again and realizing the imbecility the immense idiotic thing which he had done and therefore then he actually punishes himself you would say that eventually a man like Jesus would forgive even Judas because he forgave everybody but Judas cannot forgive himself he becomes an example in the history of this planet of what abomination, betrayal and demonic possession, diabolic possession is and basically what Judas does is he does it to himself he does the ultimate thing and also commits suicide and with this he seals his fate he kills himself by hanging which is a horrible method of death you remember that even in the second month in your lecture about Ashvini Mudra we talk about death as a particular example of when Apana Vayu goes down and therefore the exit from the body is infernal and all the other things. And therefore, not only did Judas commit suicide, but he commits suicide in a way which ensures that he will go to hell in the next moment. So in this way, that's why Ju Jesus had warned that it was better for that man if he wouldn't have been born rather than being born and doing what he did. So in this way, Judas unfortunately becomes the arch example of the traitor because he betrays, he does the ultimate offense, he betrays his master uh, in this way. The Tibetans consider identically this offense to betray your guru, like to kill your guru or to do things like this. They consider them the maximum offense, the one which brings the most terrible karmic results, the most terrible karmic punishment because it shows a rabid, diabolic character in which uh, there is no bit of light. So in this way um, this is considered the ultimate guilt. The people who are dealing with Jesus here, they are about to do something which is immeasurable in terms of karma and if Jesus wouldn't have forgiven them they should have gone down big time. The Tibetan Buddhists describe the five most heinous acts such as killing your mother, killing your father, shedding the blood of a Buddha, not even killing a Buddha, just shedding the blood of a Buddha, like wounding even a Buddha, uh, producing two spiritual schools to fight against each other, like to create a religious war, a crusade, or things like this. And therefore such acts are considered to be maximum, maximum, like the spiritual karma, the terrible spiritual karma resulting from this 
being absolutely maximum. That is why everybody should stay, when in doubt, at least stay away from these kind of actions, because you cannot play with those. But of course, fortunately for them, this becomes an exemplary thing in history, and Jesus forgives them. But although he forgives Judas, it seems that God himself has a more bitter thing for Judas, because Judas commits suicide, and thus he stays in the muck. He is just going down through his own choice, through his own conscience, through his own free will. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. This is a very disturbing thing because um, it comes, it brings up two different things. First of all, it shows that there are not many things understood about the history of Jesus. All these uh, controversial modern historicians, starting with Michael Bajant and those books, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and all these new Bible scholarship of today, they claim that actually when you read between the lines and when you read Gnostic scriptures, and when you read the contemporary Roman and Jewish literature, and you put together all that is known, it appears that at the same time Jesus was having a righteous claim to the actual throne of Israel, being the descendant of David, and the hypostasis of being a Messiah was the hypostasis like King David's, to be the high priest and the king at the same time. Those of you who had the chance to hear the lecture which you keep in this school about Shambhala, you know that that is the concept of all spirituality, that is the concept of Shambhala, that the king is the spiritual ruler as well. Like in Tibet, where the Dalai Lama was the ruler, and he was at the same time the Pope, if you want, the spiritual ruler. In this way, a sane society cannot separate. You know that in modern times, ever since the advent of all the secret societies, world conspiracy, money, corruption, domination and so on, the first thing which was done to destroy the European traditional culture, and then it was done with all the cultures, Hindu, Buddhistic and so on, by the manipulators of today, is to separate religion from state, which simply means uh, the state becomes atheistic, it becomes uh, non-religious, and religion basically has no more power. It's a way of like trying to castrate the religion, like it should lose any efficiency in terms of deciding things, because the decisions are taken by the government and the state, which by definition should be non-religious. Therefore, the school shall be non-religious, the medical institution shall be non-religious, the state, the government should be non-religious, and the last traditional one, indeed, was Tibet. Tibet was the last traditional society which had to be destroyed because it was like a thorn in the eye, where actually the spiritual leader was at the same time the temporal leader. You see a bit of things like this still in the Islamic republics where the big mullahs or imams or whatever, they hold political power at the same time. You can see a little bit of the same situation in the situation of Mahatma Gandhi, who is a spiritual person, no doubt, and a yogi and a spiritual leader, but at the same time he is so charismatic that basically he holds the power. He holds the real power and the politicians more or less 
are going according to his advice. Of course, that also didn't last for long because he was exterminated. And therefore, what I'm trying to say here is that in the old days, the kings were spiritual people, like the three king mages who come to visit Jesus. They are great mages, they are great spiritualists, but they are three kings of the East. So, originally, in a sane society, it is Buddha who should be king, because Buddha knows what's best for people. Buddha will not be corrupted. Buddha will not let his ego take the better part of him. Buddha will always be compassionate. Buddha will always be aware and will always keep his ego under control. And therefore, of course, the ideal would be to take a Shivananda, to take a Ramakrishna, to take a Jesus and to take a Buddha and to put them in charge of the things because their leadership will always at least be humane, divine, compassionate, loving and all the other things. Even if sometimes it would be perhaps crazy, controversial, a bit uh, uh, enlightened to a level where the average person cannot almost follow and cannot almost understand why things are going the way they are going. But fact is that in the history of Jesus, first of all, there appears this streak of things that it's like the local population indeed had some intention of proclaiming this man a king and actually this man did not have anything against apparently because even when asked he says yes I am the king he is not crazy he knows he is not the king de facto but he simply says in the eyes of God I am the king even if you do not accept me I am the king from the standpoint of God I am your king. You may kill me and then you'll just kill your king because that is your choice. But ultimately the way God has made things in front of God, I am Messiah, I am anointed and therefore I am the king. Either your ego likes it or not. So in this way Jesus admits immediately that that is the situation, although in another way he is not laying any administrative claim and at the same time this reflects this old tradition that the person who is most spiritual should be the person who should be in charge of things because that would create a sane society, that would create a traditional society indeed. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders he gave no answer. You see here a bit of a difference. He definitely has something with these people uh, in the way in which he condemned them for so long time for all their transgressions. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony that they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Messiah? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Basically, this puts Pilate in the pot, this statement, because it says, G uh, Pilate, knew that because of envy they handed Jesus out of him. 
if indeed he would have been a real Roman with the spirit of Roman justice, he would have said, piss off, justice obliges me to set this man free, because I know that it is out of envy. But unfortunately, it seems that Pilate had his own ego, and he had his own considerations. There were some political games. He was trying to please the local king, the priests, to kind of make diplomacy with them, and therefore he was kind of held by a chain of obligations. And instead of acting with the proverbial Roman justice and say what's just is just, this man is innocent, don't ask me to do this because I won't do it, I know it's because of envy, he actually stained his hands, and clever as he was, uh, of course it, it would have been his duty to simply step in and say we do not condemn an innocent man under my rulership. That would have been the thing which should have been done, and that would have put him in a position in history. But he did not have that strength, but at least then he tried to be diplomatic and to wash his hands, as he said, and basically then he threw it onto the crowd. He simply said, okay, I cannot refuse you, but I wouldn't do it anyhow. I wouldn't do it either. And therefore, he chose a middle solution, which still makes him somewhere guilty in a perfectionistic, idealistic, moral background. Pilate does not behave perfectly. He does not behave ideally, because his wife, I don't know if it's in this gospel or in another one, but in one of them, his wife sends him repeatedly messages saying, I had a dream about that man. Do not condemn him. He is innocent. So he has multiple signals he should not touch Jesus. And unfortunately, ego, interest, game, whatever interferes there, Pilate actually is not behaving 100% clean, and therefore he has his part in the horror of this event. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So here is the Shakti, at least if you would have listened to the inspiration of his Shakti, telling him, I cannot explain, but I had a dream. Don't touch that man. At least this could have saved him if you would have trust the if you had trusted the intuition of the woman, because in this case he couldn't say that the woman had any particular interest. It was a situation in which his wife was basically detached, and yet she sent him a message: "Detached as I am, I have a signal. Don't touch that man." This is another failure where indeed he shows he is far from himself. He is far from the self because he cannot stop himself from this. Was there pressure upon Pilate? Sure, you can be sure that the devils were exerting a terrible pressure on him to confuse him and to get him to do what he was supposed to do in history. Nevertheless, the events are as they are. <clears throat> but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. That's again crowd manipulation. We have heard everything about that. It has been done in so many times, in so many centuries, that we don't even wonder about that. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. He is still desperately clinging 
to some Roman straightforwardness the way he sees him. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. That is completely ridiculous when you think of it, that the same people who one week before they greeted Jesus with palm leaves and with whatever, now and proclaimed him Messiah, now they ask the same crowd, a part of it, it was the same mob at least, who are asking now, crucified him. Just because the priests have provoked them and told them this man is not good and he is breaking the law and blah blah and all the others. That's the typical manipulation, like people cannot really see. If his own apostles got afraid and ran away like chickens, what to expect from the average person who didn't even know Jesus well and was just having an outburst of enthusiasm that this man might be the long-dreamt of Messiah. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. That's a ritual gesture, it's a symbolic gesture. And he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. He said, it is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The story of Jesus, the ordeal of Jesus is just starting. Uh, this story with the whole crowd said, let his blood be on us and on our children, is half plausible, half non-plausible. It may be one of those elegant things by which the Roman church tried to throw everything on the Jews and they said, well, Barabbas didn't do... Uh, I'm sorry, Pilate didn't do much, these people said, let it be on us. It is plausible at the same time because the mobs are terrible. In history there have been seen so many cases where people were hanged, publicly executed, and the whole town, including the housewives and everybody, they were coming to watch it as a show. So basically the human cruelty is endless if normal bourgeois citizens come just to watch some poor bastard hanging from a rope until death or being beheaded or whatever, crucified or uh, torn into pieces or spread or whatever, then why, why would people come to enjoy such a horrible, cruel show? that unfortunately shows something that people are so bored and they don't know what to do with their lives that anything is better than sitting in your home and doing nothing. One of the essences of human life, unfortunately, as I told you before, seems to be boredom, that people have to fill up the gap in their life with whatever. And since they don't pray and they don't meditate and they don't search for God, then their life is full of gaps and everybody... If you see in all the movies, every time when I keep on seeing in the movies, everybody does imbecile things. They go and bet on horses and do all kinds. You ask yourself, why can't these people stay at home and not complicate their lives, you know? Why do people become their worst enemies? It's like it's, they have a chili in their ass and they have to get out and do something, you know? And then you understand why people started worshipping a Shakespeare or whatever because it was giving them entertainment. It is known ever since the Roman times when Nero discovered that the most easy way to alleviate the masses from a revolution was to give them bread and circus. If you give them food and entertainment, the masses, the crowds are manipulable. That is why this was becoming entertainment. The crowd simply wanted to see a bloody show. It's 
not specific only to the Jews. The French did the same and uh, so many other people did the same. That is why the innocent idiots who might have said, let his blood be on us and our, our children, they were complete imbeciles. They were exactly the mob type of people, the crowd type of idiot, who did not even realize what they were saying. They need never cross their mind that if this man was indeed the Messiah, they were doing the most grievous act that somebody can ever do. Fortunately for them, remember again and again that it appears, as you will see, that actually Jesus forgave them all and this karma did not stay with them, exception made perhaps the self-blame. I think it was Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh who kept on uh, babbling that he, according to his own perception and psychological analysis, he claimed because he was having a lot of Jewish pupils in Pune in those days, and he claimed that he could notice that almost everybody in Israel seems to have a secret guilt for Jesus. They don't want to admit it. It's forbidden to speak about Jesus in the school. Many of Israeli pupils who came here or to Rishikesh, they heard about Jesus first time in Rishikesh, not in their own country where it's a taboo subject and it cannot be brought up in school or whatever. I had innumerable Israeli students who didn't even know who Jesus was. They saw first in Rishikesh the Jesus movie, and then they found out who this Jesus was and what he did, because in their country nobody told them. It was like the most taboo of subjects. And Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh said that he felt that this afflicted the collective subconscious mind of the Israelis, because it's like Jesus said, you shall not see me again before you shall learn to cry. And it's like uh, the Israelis are fighting by fighting with some Oedipian trauma in which they try to come back to Jesus, but some of their institutions and pride forbid them to go there. And it's like a pride to yourself to admit or not to admit, to basically turn back to the fundamental truth, because uh, basically you could say that Israelis could be the most proud in the world of this, because they could say the most famous man on this planet, probably, that Jesus is, is actually one of us, was an Israeli, ultimately, if you want to take it like this. So we are the nation who gave at least the most famous person in this world, and he was one of us. But it's difficult to accept he was one of us, and to embrace him, and to say, actually, something ugly happened in history, things were happening the way they happened, but we never really abandoned this man. This man is in our heart. We love him. We respect him. Okay, there was a terrible confusion. Roman assholes, stupid priests and learned people and so on. Okay, they did what they did. But we, the common people, we love this extraordinary man called Jesus because he is the best our nation has ever produced. This is the spirit of the spirit. But this does not happen yet. And therefore... It's like Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh described it as a psychological process of discovery, like we still have to come to terms with this, we still have to accept this kind of thing, and then when we cry, in the meaning like repenting, like saying we are actually so sorry that this thing has happened, it's like we have him again, it's like he is with us again. And in this way, uh, here uh, you can see that uh, this story is pretty sad in the way it is being expressed, that uh, 
it leaves like a collective trauma. If you say, may the blood of this man be on us and on our children, it's like we accept the collective responsibility on it, and it is like touching somewhere our egregore, our national soul, our collective soul, in a way in which finally, sooner or later, we'll have to deal with this, we'll have to bring it up and deal with this issue. It's a bit more complicated than that. I don't want to go into that because it will take a lot of time and it's also a very controversial thing. We'll have to bring up a lot of issues. But something, of course, there is there. You can see from the fact that this subject is actually so provocative, so painful. And even in a modern society, like the modern Israeli society, it's one of the taboos. It's one of the things that, no, you can't speak about. It's one of those things which are really, really... Uh, painful. And it continues. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. The story here does not speak about the flogging because another gospel mentions that Jesus had been flogged and whipped before. So the things were much more gruesome. All in all, uh, this movie of Mel Gibson, The Passion of Christ, seems to illustrate pretty adequately historically what has happened according to the measurements made on the Shroud of Turin and the uh, witness of Gospels and so on. So basically it seems that Jesus has been treated really, really terribly. It's not that it's unusual because the Romans had a tradition for cruelty at this. They considered it military justice or whatever. They had this so-called Spartan psychology that when somebody is guilty they had to be given the whole hand, treated really badly. And uh, they had been crucifying thousands of slaves in the time of Spartacus, just 70 years, 100 years before. They crucified legions of gladiators and peasants and so on, mercilessly, and treated them horribly. So for the Romans, their Roman discipline, this militaristic, manipuristic spirit of them, it required them to be merciless, to be like this. And of course, they gave, unfortunately, they gave the same the full Monty to poor Jesus who went through the whole ordeal in the way in which it has been described. So, of course, first they did the cat and mouse game. They mocked him, they spit on it, they bit him. And, uh, of course, here the rock was rolling big time. It was like things were out of hand already. <coughs> As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the tree, the cross or the bar. Until today this has not been fully elucidated if Jesus actually walked on the street with a bar on his shoulder and the cross was made by hanging this bar on a vertical pole or actually if he carried a real cross and that cross was completely plucked in the earth. The classical Christian images, they seem to show the cross but modern Bible research seems to say maybe it was just a heavy bar of wood, uh, which doesn't make things much more fashionable. Uh, fact is, 
that also this story says that there was a man who because Jesus was beaten up to such an extent and he was weakened in such an extent he actually was incapable to carry his own cross or at least for some durations of time because there are other witnesses which say that at some point Jesus fell down with the cross or under the weight of it so fact is that there is a famous character Simon of Cyrene who is later becoming a saint himself because he was put in this terrible circumstance he has such uh, process of conscience that this Simon of Cyrene he is like carrying the cross of Jesus which is a very symbolic thing a man who is carrying the cross of Jesus is like having a very special symbolic meaning they came to a place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull I told you before that in uh, theology that is supposed to be called the place of the skull because secretly they claimed that that was the place where the skull of Adam the first man was buried and therefore Jesus was crucified on the tomb on the mortal remains of Adam and this is the mythology this is the theology of it that in the moment when the blood of Jesus flew on the ground fell on the ground he kind of washed the trespass of Adam so Adam fucked it and Jesus fixed it basically and therefore Jesus is called the second Adam he came again to restore humanity, to restart humanity, to give it a new divine status. And therefore, everything which was from Adam until Jesus is one epoch, and it is an epoch of doom, and with Jesus there comes the promise of salvation through the person, through the divine person of Jesus. That's why it was called Golgotha, the place of the skull. There is a deeper meaning there. It puts things in a historical perspective. It's like everything comes back in a circle. We are back to Adam. Things are turning back to the first man. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. I am not fully aware there is a tradition about this wine with gall. It's something with vinegar and so on, which was supposed to have some sort of effect or to be symbolic in the Roman way of performing crucifixion and Jesus is not standard on this one as well he refuses to touch it when they had crucified him they divided up his clothes by casting lots so also that is a thing which as you will see was uh, prophesied it had been prophesied and sitting down they kept watch over him there above his head they placed the written charge against him this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That is why when you see Christian crosses over it, uh, there is written, you will always find a board over the head of Jesus, which contains the four letters, I-N-R-I. That is, comes from Jesus Nazarensis Rex Judeorum. In Latin, it means Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So that was put above there. It's an irony because he was not king of the Jews and that's why they condemned him, like for claiming that. But in the moment of crucifixion, wanting to make out of that an explanation of the accusation, like that's why this guy has been crucified, they actually gave him the title. In death, he was crucified with a board on him saying, Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews. So involuntarily, 
like they said the truth. The truth was there, obvious, that they were just crucifying the king of kings in this way. So this was something which provoked a lot because uh, the local people, the Jewish people, they realized that why do they put that plate there and it makes it sound really absurd. I mean, if you crucify him with that board there, it really makes obvious, it makes things obvious. But uh, yes, that was the fatality of history, that that seems to have been uh, the synchronicity. And uh, two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Actually, this is a discrepancy again, because those two robbers were probably not crucified in the same day. You probably don't know, but the historical studies on crucifixion, like in... Spartacus, gladiator time and others, as well as in later Roman times, shows that people who were crucified very seldom died quickly on the cross. The death on the cross was an agonizing long death which lasted for days and days. The best chance you had to die on the cross if you got a septicemia, a global blood infection, and you got high fever and you died, then you died in three hours by blood infection then you are lucky. But actually, until then, you could not die. If your blood would not get infected, the wounds of crucifixion were not fatal wounds. They were bad, they were grievous, they were painful, but they would not kill you. You would undergo a lot of blood loss, but still you would not die because of that. And then why did people die on the cross? They died of exhaustion, they died of hunger, and it takes a hell of a lot of time to die of hunger, and they died ultimately because of asphyxia, because of uh, incapacity to breathe, because they were hanging on their arms, and when you hang on your arms, the lower you get, you get into a position where it blocks the lungs. So when you hang and you have no more muscles to hang yourself, you become incapable to breathe, and then you go into hypoxia, and basically you choke, you simply asphyxiate, because of a mechanical impossibility to breathe, but to become so weak that you will not have the reflex to push yourself up and to support yourself on your feet and just to hang there, it takes a hell of a lot of time. And that's why the crucifixion death was considered to be painful, horrible, because it lasted long and agony. Only the lucky ones died quickly because of infection of the blood. And that is why the Romans, after they considered that somebody was tortured enough and if they continued to live, they had the tradition that after one day, two days, three days, when it was considered enough, they broke people's legs. They came with a piece of wood and they simply broke your shin bones while you were on the cross. And if they broke your legs, then you couldn't hold yourself on the legs anymore. And then you're hanging on your arms and in half an hour you'd be dead again by asphyxiation and so on. And that is why it is very probable, because remember, there were not several people to be crucified. There was Jesus and Barabbas in the morning. And Pilate asked, whom do you want? And they want Barabbas. And Je so they, where are the two thieves coming from? Obviously, they don't come from the same day. These are dudes who have been crucified before, and they have already been on the cross for a while, and they are in their agony there. So Jesus is crucified between them, but not at the same time. Uh, they have been already agonizing for a while. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You 
who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the tree if you are the Son of God. This is the ultimate test because the man is in agony. He is in shock. He has been flogged. He has been mocked. He has been beaten up. Maybe he has broken ribs or bones or whatever. He is crucified and in agony. And he is the man who can raise the dead. He is the man who can walk on water. He is the man who can spin the universe on his little finger. And a bunch of cockroaches, the bunch of beings who are a bit better than cockroaches, they come to you and tease you, saying, if you really are so smart, why don't you free yourself? You really must have the stubbornness of God to be able to resist this one. To be in agony and crushed and be humble and surrender totally and not to answer such a provocation when you are actually suffering a lot and it would be enough to do like this to stop the whole caboodle, to dematerialize, to do something, to fly, to escape from everything, to change reality, to use any of the multiple cities that Jesus was having. And therefore, to be so powerful and at the same time so surrendered, so humble, this is the real test of Jesus. Because it is inconceivable. If he was a victim, you would say, well, poor guy, he was whipped and flogged, he couldn't do anything. But the paradox is that this was the most powerful man on earth in actual fact. And he was sitting there and getting fucked by a bunch of imbeciles in a way in which was completely beyond comprehension and he, they were even mocking him and trying to make like, well, if you really have any spiritual value, show us. What a provocation. It's like you can be tempted to say, well, these people don't really know who I was and that's why maybe they will not believe in my message. At least let me show them an example of power so then they will bow down and they will say, wow, yes, Aferim, we are going to listen to your wisdom. Now you demonstrated that you are really powerful. What a temptation to show your power so that perhaps people will listen to God, will listen to your message. Even this temptation, which is fundamental, Jesus has to surpass it and to stay there like a bum, like a loser, and to get the whole ordeal to go through the whole thing. <coughs> In the same way, <coughs> the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. Of course, the Manipura people, they wanted revenge, and now they had to enjoy to serve their revenge, because they had to put him down, to crush him, to destroy, to assassinate his character. So they were there, like crows, like crows, they were there to pick up the corpse, to simply enjoy the victory which they thought they have. And they mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the tree and we will believe in him. What a temptation! These people say, if you come down, we'll finally believe in you. And he didn't. Because he knew they would not. It's just a demonic game. It's just a satanic temptation. They want me to do this, but their ego is so demonic that if they will come down, they will say that the devil put me down. They will say that it's an illusion. They will say that the Romans didn't do it right. They will find any excuse, ridiculous or not. For They just say they will bow down to me but they are not 
it's just the game of illusions, it's just the temptation, and he has to resist. What a temptation to be in shock and agony and to be in the whole of it. And those people say, if you really are our king, get off the cross and we'll bow down to you. This is ultimate. It, it requires a supernatural, a divine consciousness to be able to go through this undisturbed, to be able to see the goal, to see the light in the end of the tunnel and to be able to stick to it. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. <clears throat> so there he was, experiencing hell on all the levels, not only physical hell, but moral hell, intellectual, emotional hell. He was basically dragged to the limit, dragged into something which is inconceivable. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came all over the land. Sixth hour means twelve, because the Jews were measuring the hours from sunrise. So the sixth hour, the sixth hour is midday, and the ninth hour means 3 p.m. So between noon and 3 p.m., suddenly it got very dark. It can be presumed that there were some very black clouds, like a strange storm, one of those ominous storms, which is a synchronicity. You can realize that when a being of the size of Jesus goes through what he goes, it's like the whole nature suffers. It's like the whole planet responds to it. It's like this is something which has a reflection in the energy field of the planet, in the mind of this planet. And it's like the angels and all the forces are disturbed by this horrendous imbalance in the force, as it would be called in the Star Wars language. And therefore, of course, when it happens, you can see that the nature goes berserk. There happen a lot of synchronicities, which at least these ones could have told to those people who are religious in those times, whoops, it's not, this man is not just everybody, because when Tom, Dick and Harry dies, these things don't happen. This is really significant. But unfortunately, the hearts of these people were so hardened that they could not see, they did not wish to see what was obvious and what is speaking to everybody. So a darkness, a great darkness came over all the land. After about the ninth hour, Jesus, like 3 p.m., Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry is the ultimate demonstration of something which the average person cannot understand. It is the ultimate demonstration that Jesus, in his agony on the cross, he was suffering as an ordinary human being. Remember, should Jesus have chosen to use one of his many paranormal powers, he could at least have anesthetized himself and not felt his body anymore. He would have done a stunt of acupuncture, like putting five needles in his body, and then he wouldn't have felt anything. He would have been like numb. He would have gone outside of his body in astral projection. He would have used some self-hypnotic process. There were hundreds of things which he could have done for stopping that pain, or at least for stopping himself from perceiving that pain. 
but Jesus didn't do any of these and he didn't even resort to samadhi. He was not even in a state of superconsciousness, exception made through his own divine nature. That's why he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Basically in those moments he felt alone. Even the prayer to God was not answering anymore. God was not picking up the phone anymore. He was left completely on himself, completely alone. There was no samadhi, there was no prayer, there was no relief, there was no angels, there was nothing. This man was left alone to do it as a human being. As I told you in the very first lectures about this subject, Jesus did this on purpose because this was the only way he could redeem the humanity. This was the only way. If you would have come as a God and said, Ha! Shoot me! Crucify me! I can take it! See, I'm smiling! No pain! Then what would have been this but bragging, showing off a divine almighty being coming and showing I don't care about what you worms are doing to me. But that, that has nothing spiritual in it. It's just a demonstration of force. It's not compassion. It's not forgiveness. It's not taking, assuming the human condition. Jesus wished to assume the human condition in all its details. And therefore, he goes in this as a mortal. That is the paradox. This shows incredibly. I told you, Ramakrishna had cancer. But he stopped his pain with meditation. Other great yogis had other diseases, problems. They stopped their pain with meditation. Others have died martyrdom, like Gandhi, but they died quickly and almost painlessly, like shot and then pop, off, then you are. But in the case of Jesus, he died slowly, agonizingly. He has been tortured in multiple ways, and he doesn't even, the, the possi even have the possibility to do his yoga, to do his thing. Because he chose not to do. That's why Jesus has prayed so many times, Lord, Father, take this cup from me if possible. Because the cup which he drank is a real bitter cup. It's the most bitter cup, perhaps, which anybody has been drinking on this planet. Remember, there have been martyrs. The, in the Spanish Inquisition or Italian, whatever it was, they even burned the great astronomer and alchemist and astrologer Giordano Bruno. He was burned at stake. But if you'll read the story of the burning of Giordano Bruno, who was a heretic scientist in the Renaissance time, you are going to see the inquisitors, they got afraid when they burned Giordano Bruno. Because as soon as he started being burned by the flames, Giordano's face turned to heaven, he was transfigured and started shining with light, and he was in ecstasy. He started smiling blissfully, and he was gone. They burned him, but he was in ecstasy. That's what the martyrs were. The martyrs were crucified in the Colosseum and thrown to the lions. They died singing in bliss, in prayer, and it was known that the Christians who are martyrized, they die blissfully, because the Holy Spirit comes, and takes them into bliss before the pain starts manifesting. And therefore, it's just in the beginning, while they had the faith to stand on. But once it started, they're gone. The mercy of God, the compassion of God, took them out of there, and they did not really suffer. Their agony was before, while they manifested their faith. But once it started, they were graced. There were grace upon them. Well, no grace for Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who didn't get any grace because he chose so and he drank it to the bottom. That makes it unique. Not only that he did not have physical relief, he didn't have spiritual relief, at least if he would have felt God, but he was even unable to feel God in that moment and he says, my God, my God, why have you left me? It's like an agony which is beyond proportion and the mind is the ultimate refuge, at least when you know something and feel something in your mind, you know, okay, I'm suffering, but I know why and who I am. But for Jesus, even this was taken. What a perfection of spirit. What a shining of the Jivatman must a human being have, that even when your mind is fucked and in agony, and it doesn't feel anything anymore, and you have lost everything, you should still stand and be what you are. That's the demonstration of perfection. That is why Jesus is perfect, because he goes through everything and nothing can demote him, in spite of the fact that he feels, my God, you have left me, his spirit is diamond. He is what he is. When some of those standing there heard this, they said he is calling Elijah, like he said Eli, Eli, which they supposed it was some nickname for Elijah because of this relationship with the old prophet. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Uh, this was supposed to alleviate thirst, sour things in heat that are supposed to alleviate thirst. But it's a kind of cruel last minute thing. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. They were still not understanding. For them, this trip was something. And then, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Actually, the, if you read all the four Gospels, you get to the fact that all in all, Jesus has said seven sentences on the cross. This one with Eli, Eli, God, oh God, oh God, why have you left me? Is just one of them. And he said seven such things totalized all in all. Some of them are very, very significant. Some of them are like a last message. And the last which he says is, Father, in thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he says, it has been accomplished. In the very last minute, in the very last instant, he says, I have done it. Now it's over. Now it has been done. And basically he knows. I have gone through the whole thing. And he says, now it's accomplished. It's Whatever you have asked from me has been done to the letter. But here the Gospel of Matthew does not go into the details of those. And he says he cried whatever and he cried out and then he gave his spirit so he passed away. Such a quick death that he was crucified in the morning and he dies already by 4 or 5 o'clock in the p.m. It shows obviously that in medical terms Jesus seems to be one of the lucky ones he gets a blood infection and he dies rampantly in a matter of hours. And of course, if you want to put it in terms of yoga, you can almost say that it's like a yogic power of dying at will. But don't forget, Jesus does not use yogic powers when he's on the cross. And therefore, we are bound to accept that somehow he is getting the quick exit out of it. This quick exit being terrible enough as it was. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to the bottom. The earth shook 
and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. We are talking about overwhelming miracles and synchronicities. First of all, apparently, not only that there is a dark sky and ominous, but at the same time there is an earthquake, a big time earthquake, which is so big that it actually produces rocks to, shook, to shake, tombs to open, it produces even the great temple to crack here and there. It is said that one of the main stones also cracked on top, and because it's so splitting, that actually the veil, the famous veil which was hiding the holy of the holies, the veil that was separating the altar, is torn into pieces. This is, if you are a bit symbolic and you believe in omens, there is no symbol more clear than this. That means we are killing a man who is God, and at the same time our temple cracks, and the veil which is supposed to hide the invisible, which is supposed to hide the infinite, which is supposed to hide the face of God, is torn. It's like it simply says, you have fucked up. The grace is taken away from you. Things are really, really bad. It's like, where is God here? You have just, you have just dismissed Him in a cruel way. What can you expect anymore in this way? So, this synchronicity is shocking and major miracles seem to be attached to it like they say that even ancient saints came out of the tombs and some people witnessed they spoke with them ancient holy men like prophets of the old days this is indeed if it is not just collective hysteria which sometimes it can be but if there are several of them it starts being really scary then it says wow another sign it's like really the heavens get open and things are spectacular. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Even the Romans, who are not that religious, they, have com they had common sense, and not being blinded by this hate with which the priests were blind, with their ego and demonism, even the Roman centurions who did the dirty job, they were ready to accept, uh-oh, this is not a good sign. We just crucified this guy and the earth shook and a lot of miracles happened. Whoops, we have crucified the wrong guy here. We, this is really a big flop. This is really a big fiasco. And actually, one of the things which Jesus said on the cross and which makes him divine indeed, is the fact that at some point one of his sayings is that he prays to God, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. He asks God to forgive even those who crucify them, him, right then, because he says they are just a bunch of stupid soldiers. They don't know what. Don't punish them because they crucify a Buddha, because then they should burn in hell forever for this one. And if I will hold this against them, then it's uncompassionate. So out of compassion I'm asking you, don't hold this one against them, because these are just a bunch of ignorance. You can't really blame them for this. They don't know what they are doing. They are cockroaches, really. I mean, you cannot blame them for being what they are. So in this way, Jesus is fully compassionate, and the Christian history shows that these people who crucified him, these people who played lots on his clothes, and they won his robe and his clothes, his simple clothes, of course, 
and this centurion and others, they actually got converted to Christianity. They went through a deep trouble, they went through a deep turmoil in their soul for the next 10 years of their lives, most of them, they were deeply, deeply tortured, they had nightmares, they, and they didn't know who they were, what they did. Some people told them, you crucified God. Some people told them, forget about it, he was an asshole. They felt some things, they saw some things, and their conscience. It's like Jesus, even to these people, gave them a blessing. He gave them a samadhi, which was more like a curse for them, because these people started seeing clearly, they were forgiven by God, Jesus took their karma away, and now these people were realizing, my God, what have we done? You know, if, this is, if it is really the way we feel it, phew, we have done the inconceivable. And that is why, you'll be surprised to know, I forgot their name, their names are known, especially the centurion, and the guy who won in dice his robe, this guy's name has been preserved by the unofficial history, by the oral history, by the unwritten history, and these people are some of the first Christian martyrs. Short time afterwards, they baptized themselves Christian, and they started believing in Jesus, and because they were Roman soldiers, they were persecuted soon after, and they actually are some of the first of the martyrs of history, because... These people have been almost, in, basically the people who crucified Jesus, they became saints, they reached enlightenment. This was the ultimate, extraordinary, formidable gift which Jesus gave them. They crucified him and he enlightened them. That was the turn of history. That is the infinite power of consciousness in the way Jesus does it. That is why, as you can see, even the soldiers, something moves into them. And this is not a joke. It's known in the official history that these soldiers are some of the first Christian martyrs because they actually became fervent Christians not long time after this because of the remorse, because of the repentance, because, because they were the first-hand witnesses to all these things which have happened. <coughs> Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So here again uh, is an account of some historic fact. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea called Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. This Joseph of Arimathea is a hero. He has been become the hero of many myths, like he collected some of the blood of Jesus in a pot, and that pot became the Holy Grail. And there are a lot of stories about Joseph of Arimathea. fact is that the nightfall was coming, and uh, the nightfall was the beginning of Sabbath, because we were Saturday in the late afternoon. And in the Sabbath, nobody could move or do anything. Therefore, they had to bury Jesus quickly, quickly before the Sabbath. So they gave him a quick funeral without proper embalmment and anything, because the sunset was coming, and the Jews had to run in their homes and to do the Sabbath things. And therefore... Joseph of Arimathea claimed the body being an influential person. He got it easily. 
Pilate was even very happy to get rid of this problem once forever, which he didn't actually. And uh, Joseph of Arimathea offered his own tomb. He had a tomb prepared for his family, which was cut, and he said, take this one, put Jesus in there. He was my friend, my teacher, my whatever, and this is what it is. So they anointed him summerly in myrrh. They were using some herbal embalmments, like some gel made of myrrh, aloe vera, and things like this, and they were embalming the body in this. That was a traditional method of embalmment of the bodies. So they, he placed it in his own tomb. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. That was the classical way of being buried that way, like being in a hole in the rock and with a rock on top of it, like a lid over it. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. See, it's a programmatic thing. It's propaganda. It's all about faith and things. These people are so full of grudge, they want to assassinate the character. This is their biggest fear, that this man, even dead, he will get the fame. That's the problem. It's assassinating the idea. Assassin the demons are not crazy about the body. The devils were crazy that this man was preaching the message. This is what drives the devils mad. And therefore, these people being manipulated, they want to trash it completely, to assassinate the character of Jesus, to demonstrate, and they simply imply, there may be some mischief, and then there will be so and so. Actually, this idea has been taken, as you will see, and although there is a lot of evidence it was not so, it has been propagated in various ways. Even the Muslims, to save the face of the Prophet Muhammad, they claim that actually this is what has happened. The Muslims have a weird theory that Jesus was not dead, but in some kind of clinical death, yogic coma. And actually they took him, they made him well, they kicked him out of Israel, and he lived the rest of his life in Srinagar, in Kashmir, and therefore his tomb is supposed to be in a mosque in Srinagar. So this kind of theory is like saving, because that's what makes the big difference between Jesus and the Prophet Muhammad, because then Jesus is the Son of God, resurrected by God Himself, ultimate miracle, unique, and uh, in the case of the life of the Prophet Muhammad, the things are not to such a degree. And then to kind of put an equality and say Jesus was a prophet, and Muhammad was another prophet, and actually Muhammad was better than Jesus because he was later, he was subsequent, and he is more right than Jesus. Then they tried to minimize Jesus by creating this story that he actually didn't, was not resurrected by God. He was just having some yogic coma and he was discreetly saved and hushed out of Israel. And he discreetly, because he was a nice human being and he also had the right to live a decent life, right? And he lived the rest of his life in Srinagar where he also passed away. This is a demonic idea from the standpoint of the message of the Bible and of Jesus because it simply tries to minimize the person of Jesus just to equalize it with others. It's like Jesus is getting too much faith 
if you admit that he was risen by God himself. And then we have to cut a bit his reputation by implying some diminishing things in his life. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So the story seems to be covered. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Uh, the resurrection of Christ had already occurred. It is supposed to have occurred at midnight between Saturday and Sunday, at the midnight after the end of Sabbath. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men, like a state of shock, a state of... The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Basically, this is the ultimate divine thing, which is the cherry on top of the cake and marks the ultimate victory and confirmation of Jesus. Jesus surrenders, says, God, Father, in thy hands I commit my spirit. And basically it's like show to the whole world who I am. If I am an imposter, if I am nobody, I go to hell. I die like everybody else. If not, show it. That means I did my part. Now comes your part. Exalt me. Show indeed what the truth about things is. I have fulfilled my part staunchly. And of course, when the Son of God fulfills His part staunchly, you cannot expect that God will do less than that. On the contrary, God always does more. God always comes to the encounter of the human being, giving even more out of the infinite generosity of grace. And therefore, of course, the miracle happens. Jesus surrenders. That's the miracle of it, that Jesus does this after death. That means not only that Jesus dies like a layman, not only that he dies like a Tom, Dick and Harry on the cross, in pain and agony, without yoga, without samadhi, without paranormal powers, but after he dies, he drifts like a dead soul. The dead souls were going, like the Greeks said, across the sticks, across, they were going down in the Hades, they were going down in the infernos, down in the darkness, and Jesus just surrenders. Normally he would say, wow, in the moment when I died and all the other guys cannot see what I'm doing anymore, here I am, I'm doing the pova, I'm going out through my Brahmarandra, I'm crossing the bardo in three seconds, and there I am with God again, finished. I fi but no, the test is not yet over. The test is that Jesus patiently waits after as well. He surrenders, he is in Shavasana. He says, God, may thy will be done, I'm... I'm not doing anything. I'm waiting. Your move. And then God has to do the most unexpected move in the history. He simply has to send an angel and raise Jesus and show that indeed things were that way. And in this way, 
That is why the, resur the resurrection of Jesus is magic. It has so many effects. It is first of all that resurrection is the sign of life. If Jesus is resurrected, then anybody can be resurrected. If the power of God can resurrect Jesus, anybody and anything can be resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of the resurrection of anybody in this world. Not necessarily a resurrection in body. Sometimes various Christian churches are completely ridiculous by conserving all kinds of body parts of the deceased. Like God needs bones or tissues to resurrect people physically. And they hope that if people have laid into graves and so on, then at the doomsday the angel of God will come and whoever is found uh, at least a piece of bone left of them, they will be raised. And the biggest tragedy is that you have been blown into an explosion or drowned in the sea and nobody can find any rest, any mortal remainders of you. What a ridiculous idea. First of all, that God doesn't need any mortal remainder to remember of anybody because we are talking about the universal consciousness. The power of God is almightiness and when we talk about almightiness there is no limit to what the grace can do. So why should, the God, why should God be conditioned by such ridiculous things? This is a form of morbid spiritual materialism in which people still attach a lot of importance to flesh, bones, mortal remains, material body and so on. The resurrection of Jesus is a resurrection in the body, but it's a resurrection of light. He is telling to Mary Magdalene in another one of them, or in this one, I don't know, we'll see in a second, he's telling them, don't touch me, because I haven't gone back to God. It's like, if you touch me, uh, you are doing something bad to me, I'll feel unpleasant. It's like, my body is not a body of flesh anymore. I am in the diamond body. I am in a body of light. That means, that's why you cannot touch, I am resurrected, but I am something else. That's why this resurrection is a body of light. In this body of light, Jesus still exists for 40 days, and then he ascends to heaven in front of crowds who witness this incredible. He dematerializes, he turns into rainbow, he goes into the kingdom of God bodily, with his physical body. That's the full manifestation of the diamond body. But his resurrection is not physical. That's why people who believe in a physical resurrection of the flesh, they delude themselves with something absurd because people who resurrect, they are not supposed to stay on earth forever because the earth is not such a bright place after all. It's not such a brilliant place. Even Jesus, after he resurrects, he stays 40 days to assure everybody, yes, it's me and things are like this. And then quickly runs back to heaven because why should he stay here and endure hunger and cold and thirst and all the deprivations and the limitations of this miserable limited physical world. Therefore, the people who are resurrected, they are resurrected in spirit. They are resurrected not to just live another 70 years on earth. What's so big deal about living on earth again? The resurrection is a resurrection in which one becomes the citizen of the kingdom of God. One becomes a citizen of heaven and therefore this resurrection is a resurrection in a diamond body, in a light body, in a spiritual body and that's it's true in the case of Jesus it's early and he is resurrected physically but even then he is transmuted alchemically in a being of light. And that is why 
this resurrection of Jesus is a great miracle. It has so many effects. Uh, one of the liturgic songs which is sang on Easter, it says to Jesus, you have trodden, you have trodden on death with your death. With your death, you have defeated death. That's the way to defeat death. You defeated death by dying. You died as God and therefore death has been defeated. And not only for you, but for everybody else. The second part of that verse says, And to those who are in the graves, you gave life. It's a song addressed to Jesus. And basically it simply says, Your death has given life to the whole world. It is from here that starts resurrection. The Christian theology, and this has been supported by all the great saints of Christianity, starting with the first apostles and finishing with late saints, the Christian theology basically says that because the curse of God was upon Adam and all his seed, the people who were born of Adam and all his seed in up till the time of the second Adam, who is Jesus himself, they were doomed. They had the destiny of doom. The Gurdjieff has a way of speaking about this, and he says that the people who die in ignorance, the people who live usually, they go on the famous Pitriyana of Hinduism, which is the path of the ancestors, which is the path of the moon. The Gurdjieff had a theory that the world of the solar system is higher because the sun is a higher center and the moon is lower. He was thinking in terms of satellites, that the galaxy has as a satellite our solar system. In our solar system the sun has the planets of satellites, the planets have moons as satellites, and the more you go to the secondary ones, the more you go down on the frequency. And that is why Gurdjieff, as well as the ancient Hindus, he did not invent this one, they considered that the moon is lower, is like a lower level than the life on earth. So from the earth, you have two choices. You go the path of the moon, which is down, Pitriyana, the path of ancestors, which means the path of the regular people, or there is one which is called Devayana, the path of divinity, the path of God, which is related to the sun. Instead of going towards the moon, you go towards the sun, and that is why the people there are called solar. Rama is a king belonging to the solar dynasty. What means a solar dynasty? It means spirit belonging to Devayana. That is why the evolution is to go to the sun. That is why the sun has a very important mystic function, I was seeing again the other day the movie of the life of St. Francis of Assisi and he says the brother son has enlightened me and shown me the thing. It's like the son is the next level of evolution, is superior and that's why going to the sun, it means going to the bright light like in Bardo Todol, like in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Choose the bright light, not the dull light. The moon is the dull light and it goes down the Pitriyana and the sun is going up Devayana going on the path of the sun. And that is why it is considered that all the people, at least in the Judaic environment, for lack of greater saviors, we don't know really what happened with the disciples of the Buddha or what happened with, uh, I don't know, Adi Shankaracharya or Patanjali or other people who lived in that time. This addresses to the people in that cradle, in the Judaic cradle. Because this curse was upon them and they were considering themselves inheritors of Adam and of this 
famous curse, it's like they're all cursed. And even the prophets, and even the people, the great people, they were going on Pitriana, they were going on the path of the moon, they were going down. It's like as good deeds as you did, it still cannot compensate for the curse of God that you are bearing a blame, you are bearing a big, big problem. And therefore, this is the paradox. When Jesus is in the limbo, when Jesus himself goes, he is carried on the path of the moon. So basically he goes to the dark zones in the netherworld. And some Christian visionaries, some of the great saints, I don't know, Basil the Great or whoever, they went in meditation and prayer, they witnessed this, and they said this was one of the greatest miracles that happened in the, pre, in the subtle world, that a spirit which was divine and totally solar found himself at the gates of hell in the lunar nether world. And even the demons, even the dark entities of there got scared and they said, what is the Son of God doing in the nether world? You know, it's kind of, we know who this guy is. Why does he drift down here when his place is with God? And then the angel of God comes and hits with the lightning and the light of resurrection comes and the whole caboodle is turned upside down. Suddenly, the doom, the curse, is lifted. And that is why Jesus is the new Adam. That suddenly, all those people who are waiting and waiting, for them the coming of Jesus was like a doomsday, was like judgment day. Finally, this guy came and ended the curse. And now we can go up again towards the light. That is why the way it happens with Jesus is exemplary, that he surrenders, he accepts even to go towards the infernos, and suddenly God has to step in. God has no choice. He really has to step in because his child, Jesus, did the deal. He did his part, and therefore God is bound by his own promise to spoil his own rules of the game and to interfere in the manifestation and to perform a shocking miracle to change the things, to redeem, to wash the curse, to change everything in these terms. And that is why what Jesus does is valid on many levels. It cannot only be seen physically. It's something which has a tremendous importance in all the, in all the subtle realities. So therefore, the angel tells them that do not be afraid. I know that you looked that the angels came and he was like lightning and the soldiers shed in their pants and they were completely frozen, petrified with the fear of this. Exactly as the apostles of Jesus were petrified on Mount Tabor when Jesus shone with light and transfigured. It's in the nature of the human limited being seeing such a thing to simply be petrified to realize that you are in front of when the angel of God showed up in full power with definite orders go and blast the doors open and do this then this is an irresistible force which is expressing the almightiness of God and therefore the angel gives to Mary Magdalene and to the other Mary the mother of uh, Zebedee and uh, uh, the others I forgot exactly not that it matters you can read for yourselves she is giving the message and he is saying he is not seer, you can see the place where he lay go and tell to the disciples he is going to Galilee, you can meet him and so on so the women hurried away from the tomb after they yet filled with joy and ran to tell the disciples 
Apparently, when the women went into the tomb as a historical parenthesis, they found the loin cloth, the linen cloth, I'm sorry, in which Jesus had been wrapped with the spices, and this famous cloth of linen became the shroud of Turin of today. It's supposed to have been found in that the Jesus, when resurrected, shed that those clothes, and that piece of cloth remained as a historical evidence, which apparently exists until today. As you know, the Shroud of Turin is controversial, but most of the scientific researches indeed tend to point to the fact that this is an artifact which is the actual piece of cloth in which Jesus had been wrapped for those one day and a half, two days, while he lay embalmed in the tomb before the miracle happened. So, women hurried away to tell the disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. There starts a chain of events here, which in other Gospels it is filled up with other information, like pieces of a puzzle, which are very paradoxical. Suddenly Jesus starts appearing, disappearing. They speak with the men in the garden, and after they speak with him five minutes only, afterwards they realize that actually it's Jesus. Thomas sees him and he wants to touch the wounds because he cannot recognize him. It's like Jesus changes face already, appears, disappears. He's in a body of light. He is a superhuman being already in full power. He does have no more need to hold back anything because he has fulfilled his mission. And now there starts happening miracles, puzzles of space and time. He says he's going to Galilee, but still he appears just near his tomb to these women and they touch him and they worship him and he doesn't stop them from worshipping him like now he is God indeed and indeed he allows them like he is a Buddha, he is an uh, expression of God and all the other things and uh, basically here the start, I mean the appearance of Jesus, the behavior of Jesus is totally paranormal. When you try to put together what happened in those coming 40 days, it's completely shocking because sometimes it almost like makes no sense. Jesus appears in two places, three places simultaneously. Now he is in Jerusalem, then he is in Galilee in no time. It's obvious that the physical rules of locomotion and material rules do not apply to him anymore. He's already working on the cosmic energy. He's riding on the beams of cosmic energy. He is something else already. And he tells them. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So, basically, it's a kind of a source of disinformation. You see, it's Orwellian, it's 1984. These people are trying to rewrite the past. They simply cannot have this man, Jesus. Even when it happened, obviously, the evil in them, the egoism in them, the fear in them is so deep, that they have to assassinate him morally one way or the other because you can't have this burst open because then you will appear as guilty and they cannot have that.
Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. How could they doubt? Again, it seems he was not looking the same. People couldn't recognize him. Then they recognized. It's like his face was changing every five minutes. This is diamond body already. We're talking about something which is, it's like when he transfigured on Mount Tabor and they could see something which they had never seen before. Now it's full power already and it happens. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the thing. Now he says, he didn't say it before. He says, now that I have passed my test, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is what it is. It's a deal. It's an evolution. It's a process. I have received all, not before. Ten days before I didn't have it. I was about to have it. I was graduating, but now I have passed my graduation. Now I have the warrant. I have received all power, he says, which is not a small thing to say. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Basically, Jesus here gives a universal message. He says, make disciples of all the nations of the world. This becomes a transnational, it becomes an international thing. It's not a Jewish thing anymore. He says, because I have got all the power, this belongs to the whole world. I decide, give this to the whole world, make disciples. He ordains the baptism, which he, it's not his invention. The baptism was invented by John the Baptist and perhaps others before him. So he institutes, he accepts the baptism. He just institutes that it should be done in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is not completely unusual in the Jewish environment, where although they have one God, later the Kabbalistic texts, they speak very clearly about the Trinity, the infinite, the infinite light, the void, uh, you are, we have spoken about that, that they decide on a triad. Even the tree of life in Kabbalah has on top of it a triangle, the three upper sephiroth, which are corresponding exactly to these aspects, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the three divine upper powers. So in this way this is not completely unusual, but Jesus formulates it in a specific way, and that's uh, the way it has been given to mankind. And, basically, he says, obey the commandments because things have been expressed clearly, and I am with you always to the very end of the age, of this age. With this, the promise of Jesus is very clear, I am with you till the end of the age. So, that makes that if Jesus says, I have been given all power, now I can be a patriarch, now I can be a lineage starter, now I'm starting my own religion, baptize people in my name, make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you till the end of this time. In this way, Jesus is giving the divine promise, I have been anointed by God to be what I am, and therefore I have the power. It is within my power to do this, and I am doing it, and therefore do it accordingly. This is 
the great victory of Jesus who had the moral fortitude, the incredible moral fortitude to save humanity, metaphorically speaking, by descending down to hell, offering himself totally and thus opening a spiritual channel for this poor humanity. This makes that the message of Jesus is valid till the end of this age. When Kali Yuga will be over, then the message of Jesus may be refreshed again, may be updated, upgraded again, either by the second coming of Jesus or by turns of events which bring us in Satya Yuga and which require a superior type, a superior form of spirituality. But until that time is there, remember that Jesus says, till my second coming, I am the boss around here. And this is the way it has been transmitted in time. Many, many mystics, many saints along history, they have had visions, they have confirmed different things. Even great yogis such as Ramakrishna Paramahamsa and Yogananda, they had mystical visions concerning Jesus. And as I told you so many times, many of these affectionate, affective yogis, because Indians are so much in Anahata and they would understand what Jesus wants to say more directly, more organically, funny enough, the message of Jesus has been very, very well accepted by the yogis of India found so many common things, even when they looked upon it in a more Vedantic way, still it came down to forgiveness to the heart and so on. There is a story about one Vedantic saint of India, who at some point is killed by mistake, actually, in a crossfire or something like this. It is, he is wounded deadly by some guy. And this guy, realizing that he had wounded a great yogi and a great saint, he bitterly cries and apologizes and says, Excuse me, I didn't want, I killed you by mistake. It's a stupid coincidence, like there is no coincidence, of course. And this great mystic is dying. And this great mystic answers in the way of Gandhi, and he is Vedantic, but still you can see the heart there. This great mystic looks at him and he says, what is there to forgive? What is there to be sorry? He says, you are that, which means you are God, you are Brahman, that's Vedanta, <coughs> you are that, Tatvam Asi. So he says, you are that, I am that, what is there to forgive? He says, nobody kills anybody, it's all just an illusion. And he dies like this, forgiving the man and telling him, don't worry, you didn't kill me. Nothing. There is nothing to be forgiven. You are God. I am God. We are both one and the same thing. It's nothing. Don't worry. So in this way, this kind of metaphysical way of looking upon it, it's still containing the heart because implicitly he forgives him. He says there is no problem. There is no karma. There is no blame. You are forgiven. I am not blaming you for anything. I die in peace. Even death is an illusion. You are dead. I am dead. That is why, of course, you can see that in the Indian spirit, the message of Jesus fits amazingly, fits gloriously. <coughs> and that's why so many yogis understood him and loved him for what he brought to this mankind. With this, actually, we finished a glorious accomplishment. We managed to go more or less quickly. Sometimes I spend a lot of time to comment on some things. 
to divagate, to explain some more esoteric things. Sometimes I just read more quickly because the reading was a direct moral teaching evident through itself. And we have managed to make a complete reading of one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, some people have already asked me if next season we are going to do another one. Yes, maybe. If people will ask, we will continue, we'll, make it, we'll take it from another angle, not uh, taking the whole thing from the beginning, but just trying to explain those things which have not been mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, just to round up, just to complete the image of the event. Maybe if there will be interest, if not, this one in itself is a unit, and as such I hope it was of some use. I'm telling you again, I have sometimes seen interpretations of Jesus done by some yogis from India who really did not have exact knowledge of theology, mystic literature, fathers of the desert, philokalia, and other things like this, and who really didn't know what Jesus is, they just knew some short brief story which somebody told them, and uh, with this typical Indian boldness, they claimed that they knew everything, like I don't want to give names. I remember some of the disciples from the lineage of Yogananda, some disciples of Lahiri Mahasaya kept on writing books and they were trying to explain in a yogic way the life of Jesus and they were trying to explain false facts. First of all, they didn't even have the original facts. They were commenting on all kind of nonsense which was not even real as primary facts. So they were very misinformed and unfortunately they were making a salad out of the whole thing. That is why you are going to find out sometimes that some people not really familiar with uh, Jesus' lore, they more or less superficially try to kind of pretend that here it is. I have found a few good remarks about Jesus in Ramakrishna, in Yogananda and others, and sometimes I must also admit that I have found some childish uh, mistakes not in these great ones, in some other ones who boldly stepped forward claiming that they could uh, explain things. That is why, should you want to do more, you have to read, first of all, the mystic literature. Don't forget that the people who meditated mostly on Jesus and tried to understand him and to do some yama with him are people like the fathers of the desert and other. Some of them have spent 40 years, 50 years, 90 years like St. Mark, uh, they have spent decades in prayer, in austerity, in meditation, in purity, in incredible tapas, and if anybody has found something about Jesus, can be sure that some of these people who walked on water and were raising the dead and were fully enlightened, of course their knowledge about Jesus was the best because Jesus was their daily bread, Jesus was their salvation. Jesus was in what they looked. So that is why when you want to know more, uh, remember that there have been quite enlightened human beings who have been spending a lot of time in Jesus, with Jesus. And uh, if should you want to know more, try to read what they wrote down. Some of them wrote some magnificent things down. And then you are going to understand more the marvelous personality of this God-man who has brought so much to our planet, who has brought so much <coughs> to our spirituality.
Let's see if you'd like to comment on something, if you'll have any final questions, if you'll want to bring up any issue. With this, we have finished here. And actually, because things are turning pretty administrative, this is our last late night meeting. Theoretically, that should have been one on Thursday, but for me, the program is getting a bit busy because I'm also packing and dealing with all the administrative things of end of season, so we'll not have another meeting. This is our last late night meeting for this season, and we have concluded it in the good way. Um, <coughs> I read not long back um, the book Holger Kirsten, that Jesus lived in India, and that claimed uh, many things and also claimed a lot of um, medical facts to back up what it was claiming. I think you've read the book. Um, in your opinion... Not fully, but I have had it in my hand, yes. There is, in your opinion, then, with the facts that they come along, and the whole crux of Christianity is based upon the resurrection. Therefore, do you think that the book Jesus lived in India is a load of shit, or is it... No, I think that Jesus lived in India before his mission, before uh -huh. the age of 30. Because I actually think that, and I think that that is true, because I have explained here earlier that a lot of the things which Jesus brings are typically yeah. Hindu-Buddhistic. A lot of the novelties which he brings to Israel when teaching his message are typically, typically things from Hinduism and Buddhism, mm -hmm. and he couldn't have learned them anywhere else. Some people say maybe he was in Egypt, but the, Egypt, it, the Egyptian spirituality would, had nothing of the features which Jesus teaches later. So that I believe, but the fact that he actually was not dead and after his resurrection he just went and lived some Tom, Dick and Harry life quietly in Srinagar, that seems to be, uh, it kind of it denies even the fact that he raised to heaven in front of groups of people 40 days after, you know. It simply says that's a lot of poppycock because actually nobody saw him raising to heaven. Mm -hmm. He was just uh, like this. I think uh, it satisfies some people's. Yeah, there are some mentions, because you also mentioned the Buddhists believe that he's a bodhisattva. And mm -hmm. during the time, because uh, during the time of Jesus and how we've come to know Jesus of Nazareth, was originally Jesus the Nazarene. Yeah. Yeah, sinner of no fixed That is possible. And that the, um, in throughout northern Egypt, there were. Um, leagues of um, Buddhists who were living there at the time of Jesus' birth, but also it was, it's been um, a guy, um, Notovich, a Russian who'd found some um, documents in the Hermes Monastery in Ley, um, which also go back, I, I believe, if I'm, if I'm correct, what it, what it claims is that after the resurrection, so-called the Jesus, there is actually um, evidence in writing from in these monasteries that Jesus was actually there after he was supposed to have died and, and then again you talk about his tomb in um, Kashmir in um, Srinagar. The, the problem is that many of this, I've heard a bit of this literature of Notovich, the, it was published in a small brochure and I've flipped through this book which you say and uh, many things there are related, like they found something in Lhasa, that Jesus was to Lhasa, and, you know, passingly, and so on. And these people forget a very important thing, which that's why the scholars demote it very easily. Tibet did not exist in the year zero. 
in the year zero, Tibet was a bunch of Mongolian savages. There was no Buddhism in Tibet. Tibetan Buddhism started in the 6th, 7th century with Padmasambhava. Mm -hmm. When Padmasambhava brought it from India to Tibet, Tibet was a wild land. It was a land of barbarians, mm -hmm. of Mongol savages. And there was absolutely no religion. There was nothing else in Tibet but the Bönpa. That is why to claim that Jesus learned something in Tibet in the year zero turns off any scholar instantaneously because the year zero Tibet did not exist. Tibet started working as a spiritual entity only after the 7th century AD. Even the Tibetan writing had not been created until that century. So you couldn't even write in Tibetan because they didn't have an alphabet till that time. And the Tibetan alphabet is copied mostly from Sanskrit with some Chinese additions to it. So in this way, um, I mean, the fact that some historical witnesses can have been moved in libraries of Tibet ten centuries later, mm -hmm. Lhasa was built in the 15th century only, really, really late, uh, that is plausible that documents have been moved. But to say that Jesus went through Lhasa and learned something is preposterous, because Lhasa did not exist. It was not even a village in the first century. Yeah. AD, in the year zero. And that's why some people try to make this link with Tibetan Buddhism and Tibet. This is, uh, you know, that uh, this kind of enthusiastic uh, theosophic society type of people, they had this crazy dream some 50 years ago that everything was from Tibet, with Tibet, Shambhala. It had, you know, like the whole history was just thrown to the garbage and... Uh, you don't know, you are just Western ignorance, this thing has existed since ever, and you know, the big white brotherhood has controlled this mankind ever since, and blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't fit with what history says today. Yeah, in the book it doesn't mention about Tibetan Buddhism, it just mentions Buddhism, yeah. which originated um, through India, and just about how, he, how it's said that the, to finish his purpose on earth here, Jesus traveled to... Um, Kashmir, which in things was the promised land, in the lot, and it also mentioned about the Kashmiris being the lost tribes of yeah. one of the lost tribes of Israel. Yeah. So did Rajneesh and converted, and yeah. but even it, it states a lot of um, scientific fact that even the, the Muslims of Kashmir now, even their old traditions are based on um, Jewish traditions. So before the Muslims came along, they were actually a race of Jewish people who were kicked out of Jerusalem in such a time like kings so-and-so and spread across Persia. But no, I was just interesting that the book tends to not bring down what Jesus did, but just it, the whole crux of it was, you know, what they said was the, the resurrection, because even when they investigated the Turin Shroud, it was also the fact that most medical people have, have stated that when a body is dead, the blood coagulates, and there, there was no free flow of blood. So when Jesus lay on the on the shroud, it shows definite marks of blood running. So therefore, most uh, physicians and that, or experts in the field, say that he must have been alive when he lay on there. And also going to the point of all these aloes and veras. Yeah, you'd have to read. That. I can't remember the whole yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know this is good. It's, uh, I, I think sometimes he speculates too much, especially when you put all his witness with the witness of uh, the people who spend a lifetime in meditation on this. It's like he's also trying to 
you know, unravel the mystery of history, mm-hmm. but he's competing with Augustine and Basil the Great and Anthony and other of the kind and Mary of Egypt and so on. And uh, sometimes the mystic vision is, I mean, there have been people who, you know, they had the mystic vision of things. Mm-hmm. They they could see things in another way, and most of them like did not pe- see it in this way. So for most people now, um, when it comes to religion, religion is such a mm-hmm. taboo for people that it, they they don't believe anything because even Christianity come out from the teachings of Paul, and therefore they say that these aren't the true teachings of Jesus. Correct, when but it comes uh, to Paul yeah. is actually through his own whatever whether it's his own ego, his own ambitions. Much of what is in the New Testament is Paul's stuff, no doubt about this. And Paul hadn't even met Jesus physically many, many years. But but the thing is that still the great saints who came after, Mm -hmm. they accepted his message like expressing, continuing the message of Jesus. But this is also, is this not what Muhammad done as well? When Muhammad came, he says, I'm not telling you anything new, I'm just, sort of rem- I'm just sort of repeating what Jesus has already said yeah. in that point. So he just what said that, you know, thou shalt no, no. live in this way. The Prophet Muhammad is very measured in his mm-hmm. things, in this way. Of course, the Quran is more complex than that. There are some situations. There is a paragraph where still, nevertheless, when he is confronted with, okay, so are we just Christians like everybody else around here? Uh, actually, Muhammad claims, no, it's like I'm the next prophet and therefore I'm bringing you the upgraded yeah. version of... So that's why the Muslims, they believe that their teaching is the newest teaching on earth. And then, of course, there is the, the other things which came after the prophet Muhammad because, you know, there is the Baha'i revelation and others which are supposed to have come even like to be the new upgrade yeah, yeah. after Muhammad and so on. So in this way, uh, we can argue this. This is the essence of theology. We can argue on them a lot, but I think what is more important is the message, like what Jesus oh, yeah, is transmitting yeah, yeah. to the mankind. The this that is they all, they what, how you should be. Yeah. You know what what kind of person you should be if you should identify with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Do you have any feelings as to whether the man Jesus was a, a normal guy reincarnated and had an interesting karma, or whether he was a new spirit that was created specifically for his purpose? None of them. I have said it in the beginning. According to Hindu understanding, Jesus was an avatar, which means a divine spirit, like Vishnu incarnating in Krishna or in so he was an avatar, which means a divine spirit of, a, of the highest order, who defines himself actually as the son of God, sent to earth for changing history in a particular moment. So he is simply an intervention of God, more or less directly, in the history of mankind. That avatar, he wasn't aware of that in the beginning, was he? Who? Jesus. That's hard to say. According to whatever we read in the Gospels, it appears that in his childhood he was not fully aware of this thing. That he was just very special, but like everybody else, he had to remember himself. How did he remember if it just popped up in his mind when he was 13? Or if he did meditation for two months and then it popped up in his mind? 
you can realize that if for such a man it would be enough to just sit down and close his eyes and try a little bit and it would move because he is not really a regular human being. So whatever he did, of course the results must have arisen. But indeed it shows in childhood especially that he doesn't have a memory of this as a child, which is perfectly plausible. It is perfectly... Because he lives like a normal human being, and exactly as he died as a normal human being, exactly in the same way it's plausible that he took upon himself a normal childhood, just going through it normally. He was not turning wine in water into wine when he was seven. His series of miracles and of preaching starts precisely when he is 30 and comes back from God knows where. He disappears for a while and then at the age of 30 he comes back and in three years he changes the world. Zap. That's it. It's I'm sorry? Why shouldn't he remember? I don't understand where you got that from. I mean, I don't see at all what you're saying there. If the divine consciousness had a specific role, had to happen, would it not have done something like a man like Babaji, where it just comes back to the the human condition completely, so why not? For a short while, it means avatars always remember sooner or later what they have to do. So Jesus came in the middle of Chaldean. Okay, and Adam was at the beginning. What so I'm thinking we were we were pierced by original sin for five ages and a half. In other words, is that it's hard to put time on this because Adam is a more or less a symbolic character. He symbolizes the fall of man. So it's Adam is not really something which can be defined in time. Bible scholarship tends to point that the world was created six thousand years ago and Adam, but you, we all know that that is bollocks in terms of elementary geology and history of life on this planet. So it is known today that all this Christian history from the Old Testament about the Bible and the early about Adam and the Genesis and the earliest times, it's somehow symbolic. It looks upon time in a symbolic way and it presents the characters in a symbolic way. At the time before Noah, the Bible speaks about giants, heroes and giants. Where, who are these? This is already a different yuga. It is so Adam is not just 6,000 years old. Adam is maybe 600,000 years old or whatever. We don't really know these things in fact. So only by Akasha investigation. But those who bothered to do this, they never really spoke about this. They never considered that this was worth revealing more like an intellectual curiosity. So, um, uh, the, the story from Adam is not just 6,000 years ago until Jesus. It's much longer. 
so with um, with Adam and the original sort of the original sin that everybody suffered after that. But then when when all the religions talk about the greatness of God, then why would God in his own way be so vengeful in that way that we all have to suffer because of one person's ego or stupidity? Would not no, that is a symbol. So is this just a thing that this is what the Christians are led to believe, that, you know, it's we Adam's sin and we all have to suffer for that and you know, and if we got rid of all of this, it would be like that God is all everything. He knows all his children. He's God is merciful. God is great in all aspects. Then why would he, God, need to be vengeful against the people because of Adam's own stupidity? I understand. But uh, this is first of all a symbol. It shows an integration. As I said earlier, it is very difficult. I cannot tell you if Patanjali was under the curse of Adam because, wait a second, Patanjali is also supposed to have been a son of Adam, mm -hmm. right? But he was not under the Jewish jurisdiction. He didn't consider himself a son of Adam. He never heard of Adam because he was coming from a different, from the Aryan, Indian culture and his gods and his background was a different one. So basically, these religions of old, they just work like in a cup of tea. They work on small things and they define small collectivities, small communities. That is why you cannot, uh, well, you cannot say anything about the Enlightenment in Japan at the time of Jesus. We don't know how the people in Japan were communing with God at the year zero. Or maybe it is known, but I don't know. It, anyhow, but it was definitely nothing to do with Adam. That is why I consider it a symbol. It's like you cannot put and say, because Adam, 600 million years ago and whenever, screwed up, everybody, including the Japanese and the Siberians and the South Americans and the Atlanteans and whoever, they have been under the curse of Adam uh, ever since and so on, because there have been different yugas, different spiritualities. That is why in the case of the Jews, for them it's a symbol defining a feeling of guilt and the kind of thing like we attract this. You see, each religion and each spirituality is creating a mental model, is creating like a mental frame of basic ideas, of force ideas that shape that collectivity. And for example, in Christianity, the Christian spirituality going very much on humbleness, going very much on forgiveness, going very much on unconditional love, and yes, going very much on this thing that you have to carry the cross like Jesus did, they build a certain kind of person. It's almost like the Christian prayer is almost asking for trouble because you have to carry a cross. You have to be like Jesus and carry a cross. And therefore, the typical Christian saying, the more he gets whipped by God, the more he rejoices. Because he says, God is testing me, and therefore, the more I get trouble, the more I get laurel crowns afterwards, because I'm tested and I'm winning my test. So it's a little bit like, but for example, the Hindus, the Aryans, the Vedics, the Vedic culture or the early Buddhism or whatever, they don't have that system of thinking and they don't think like this. That is why this myth of Adam, you, uh, you cannot apply it for the Aryan culture of India. It is valid strictly for the cradle of the Jews and their type of belief. It's like an idea which builds up their community 
and therefore it's valid only in that context. And therefore we can say that in, within this Jewish community, people were, fi- were living, and all the related Semitic tribes, because they are not all Jews, some of, the, some of these branches, genetical branches coming from Noah and Adam, Cain and Abel and whatever, they split in all kinds of the Middle East mm-hmm. nations uh, of today. And these nations were all of them like conditions to believe that they were coming from Adam and uh, they were having this blame to carry on them and that basically God was, was having some argument with them. And basically, this is like the caste. You are asking me why would the Aryans <coughs> then accept the caste? Why, what is the guilt? that a son of a paria should be also a paria. Why should God be so cruel and accept that the next generation of parias and outcasts and so on, they should also be born like this. That's an integration. It's like the right person is born in that place according to their karma. So it's not God who is angry at them. God is simply the divine providence, makes that those people who are fit for that destiny they magnetically attract themselves to be born in that environment and to undergo that type of faith. Therefore, this is not because of the anger of God. The anger of God, <coughs> the fact that Adam defines, I have spilled uh, the beans with God, I have uh, broken my good friendship with God, it simply means that I am creating a sub-family. It's like I am creating a low caste. suddenly. I am a curse. And it means from now on all my offspring will belong to a low caste. This has existed in India as well. And it's not a proof of cruelty of God. It's a proof of the fact that the mind works and it creates different locations. If a high spirit is to be born, then he would not be born here to be a curse. But he would be born as a Brahmin in India and be kissed in the ass all the time because he deserves that. And therefore, it's not. It's just simply that different religious patterns, they create different enclaves. They create different environments where some karmas can manifest. <coughs> so all the people who had the karma to experience this bitterness were born into this Semitic, Judaic and other tribes thing, bearing on their shoulders this subconscious image, we are guilty because of Adam and we are in a bad relationship with God the right person at the right place. It's not. The anger of God would not absurdly condemn people for that. It's only a manifestation of their karma which calls them to be there, gives them the opportunity to pay their karma. And God can seem sadistic when you look at how many people walk on the street and they are infirm and invalid and, you know, incomplete and there is so much pain and so much injustice and so much, but it's not. It's people's karma and it is their freedom which requires that they should consume that karma because else they will never learn the lesson of the universe. And therefore, yes, it was necessary for those people born in that environment to be born with this guilt that Adam screwed up and we are paying for it. Because in this way, they passed through some experience. It was their karma to have this kind of integration. God did not create a special evil karma on everybody standing them there and saying, Ha, I am angry, you all have to suffer today. You cannot imagine the cosmic consciousness being moody, whimsy in this way.
Well, it's late. Let's stop.